are like any other machine. They're either a benefit or a hazard. If they're a benefit, it's not my problem. Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner Files, which is uh, the first of its kind official, unofficial Blade Runner podcast where we are devoted to all things Blade Runner and hopefully all things Blade Runner 2049. Um, this is our debut episode. I'm your host, J.M. Prater. I'm also the a co-host and founder of Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast, and I am joined by... Uh, Ryan Zaid, and I'm, all, I'm also a co-host for Perfect Organism. And uh, and Patrick Green, uh, who uh, I'm not a replicant. I'd like to get that out there, as, far as, I, <laughs> as far as I know. And uh, and I just joined the Perfect Organism team officially like a week ago, and I already get another show to be on, which is really exciting. This is super cool. Yeah. It mm-hmm. is. It's very exciting. And I, I just, you know, we were talking about... Uh, kind of the reasons like why we started this, and it wasn't like... Well, first of all, I was searching around for a Blade Runner podcast, and I've seen a lot of podcasts in general that talk about Blade Runner, but they're not devoted. So part of it was, let's do this. No one else is doing it, but also it's, I live and breathe Blade Runner. And Mm -hmm. uh, Ryan's a big fan, Patrick's a big fan, and you're a musician, um, Mm -hmm. and there's a lot that we can contribute, and I feel like it's a... It's a good place to. Uh, it's another great thing to offer fandom because the the Blade Runner fandom is kind of all over. Um, it's kind of one of those cult classics where it's like, oh yeah, that movie, but mm-hmm. it's finally coming into social consciousness. Um, yeah, right, right, and and because twenty forty nine is coming out, it's like suddenly super visible again. And this movie right. that up until now wasn't a franchise, you know, it wasn't like a series, is becoming one, and it's like a mm-hmm. really important moment in the trajectory of this this film. You know, it's like suddenly it's going to be re-engaged with by society and you know this is like the time to talk about it and uh yeah. and yeah I, I had the same thing i was looking for for podcasts and I, there's a lot of episodes but there weren't really many super deep dives into it so mm-hmm. this is super cool absolutely and i i in terms of deep dives like uh, and i ryan knows this patrick you know this by now that's mm-hmm. what i do that's who i am yeah. i mean i mm-hmm. i, 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 I <laughs> Okay. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't. Uh, I don't experience movies like. I mean, some movies maybe that aren't very interesting, or like, oh, that was interesting, but I don't think of them again. But I exp- movies that I really experience and that I love, they stay with me, and I think about day in and day out. And Blade yeah. Runner has just enveloped my life, and like I've said this so many times over and over about how much I listen to the soundtrack and how much of a part of my life it is and how the soundtrack to Blade Runner itself is a character of the film. Yeah. Um, yeah. The soundtrack to Blade Runner is like such a fascinating moment in the history of film soundtracks because it like, 
I mean, even even within his like output, Vangelis, like it, it, the soundtrack to Blade Runner is like a really important, unique moment mm-hmm. where you get this like the whole like synthetic landscape with the organic instruments, which kind of mirrors the themes in the film, and you get this like super uh, emotive, like sort of like classic film noir love songs, like mm-hmm. torch music, coupled with this like very frightening, very um, you know mecha realistic uh, orchestral stuff. It's just a, a freaking awesome soundtrack. And and you're right. It's one of those movies that like you know, it stays with you for for a lifetime. Mm-hmm. Like it's I, I I have dreams about Blade Runner. I dream, in fact, of Electric Sheep. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, I got got the one liners today. That's I funny. I saw the unicorn in your dream too. So that wasn't a unicorn. That was you. That wasn't a unicorn, son. Oh, man, I was crazy about that. <laughs> Actually, here's a, here's a little bit of strangeness, and you guys might think I'm bullshitting you, but I had this dream last night, and I have crazy dreams usually, but last night I had this dream where I'm at this banquet, and uh, with people that I know or whatever, and we're it's like Christmas time or whatever, and we're in this barn or some type of wooden place and this bird flies in and people think it's a pigeon um and i'm not sure but it flies over my head and onto a rafter and people are like get it out get it out and so i'm like i can do it and so i stand up and i go to grab this bird and i realize it's not a pigeon but it's kind of like a dove but not really a dove but not really a blue jay and it flies in my hand and then i grasp it the exact same way that roy batty grasps that dove at the end and i walk to a window and i let the bird go and that was my dream last night. And I shit you not. Wow. I shit you not. That was my dream. I told my mom all about it earlier <laughs> Yo, today. That is a fucking metaphor for this podcast. We are grabbing that dove and we are fucking throwing that dove out of the barn. <laughs> nice. We're we killing are, that we dove. Are throwing doves left and right. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. Can I, ask yes. you guys, uh, can I ask you guys like how you came to the to the series? Like what your first experiences with it were? Uh, well, for me, I uh, you know from. Uh, for me, Blade Runner was kind of like 2001: The Space Odyssey, where the mm. first 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 time I saw it, um, you know, I just didn't really appreciate it at the time. I was like, I wasn't really sure what I saw. I was a lot younger. Um, Do you remember how old you were? Uh, first time, I must have been my teens, I think, or yeah, it must have been yeah, at least 20 years ago or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't real I didn't see really the layers or to it or anything. I was just like, oh, it's kind of kind of boring, um, and just didn't didn't really click with me. Um, but but the but I still for some reason just thought about it. And I would read read about it. Um, I ended up getting a um, an adventure game on my computer. It was called Blade Runner as well. Um, yeah, it looked really interesting. I played it and I was just mesmerized by this game. And then like this it just brought the movie to like a whole new light for me. It's just this um, aesthetic of it, the the themes. Um, and it took me a long time to realize just what a masterpiece it is. Um, and I think, I mean, the alien, alien and aliens are still, you know, um, you know, top of the top of the list for me. But I, I know I realize Blade Runner is, you know, hands down one of the best, sci-fi movies of all time and mm-hmm. um and uh you know I, I guess it was kind of similar to when it actually came out in the theaters um a lot of people didn't appreciate it like it got kind of mediocre reviews people didn't really know what they were seeing um and now people look back on it and it's you know like i said they they realize it's one of the best films ever made and now we got 
um, a sequel coming out, which I'm just so, so excited about. I mean, it's one of the most anticipated movies of the year now for me. Um, And uh, I just can't wait to to see where they go with it. I know um, there's a lot of complaints like, oh, Blade Runner doesn't need a sequel, blah, blah, blah. I mean, this is... Which we'll get into eventually. Right, right. Um, But, uh, I mean, I think it's in great hands. And I just the trailers alone, um, there's so much mystery to it. They they don't give anything away, really. Um, And I'm just like, I'm so excited to see see what the, the story is and also you know hearing harrison ford say it was the best script he's ever read i'm like this, guy's read, this guy's read a handful of scripts in his life <laughs> um, for him to say something like that um and he's kind of a straight shooter you know that's uh that's pretty awesome to hear so um yeah so i'm i'm just so thrilled it's so yeah. funny because you're right like when it came out it was not beloved immediately and i'm just trying to picture like can you imagine sitting in a fucking movie theater in 1982 and seeing yeah. those sets like seeing those miniature i mean like they still look perfect i mean uh-huh. like we just watched the movie again like four days ago yeah on blu-ray at high res and it was like it still it looks incredible the sets that they built for that thing yeah and i can just i can't even imagine what it would have been like to again be- that's a whole nother episode of the the miniatures oh, of yeah. blade runner i was just looking yeah. at photos today of the guy who who did the tyrell tower or, or pyramid uh-huh. and he's sitting among, i mean that's there's so much to these, this film, the first film alone. And there's so much of the first film that has um, paved the way and that has, that has uh, what's the word I'm looking for, um, inspired other films. So much so that even Blade Runner 2049, which could have done all of its vistas via digital, they built, mm-hmm. they built miniatures themselves for yeah, the vistas. I'm so happy about that. You know? I'm so mm-hmm. happy about that. Jamie, what was your what was your first experience with it? I know this this film like means a huge amount to you. It does. Your um, you know, that's interesting. And also, uh, bef- as I get into that, I remember when I first saw the film, and we also have to remember that the first incarnation of Blade Runner, the first version that was available was the theatrical cut, which included. Uh-huh. Uh, um, Deckard's voiceover, which, voiceover. <laughs> which was a very different experience of a film. It was kind of, yeah. yeah, you know, he's just kind of talking. Yeah. I was going to go to her house, but you know, very kind of typical yeah. or, or classic film noir. It was kind of, like yeah, yeah. or like a uh, sunset Boulevard, which was full of yeah. kind of a film noir. And it was just the writer kind of talking about his experience with this actress, you know? Yeah. And uh, Blade Runner is in the, the theatrical cut is in that, uh, the spirit of that. And I remember when I saw that film, the theatrical cut, and I was like, huh, this is interesting. But to be honest with you, the uh, voiceover, the narration took me right out of it when I first saw it. Mm. Uh, well, because it plays like pastiche. You know, yeah. it, it plays like it's like this intentional throw. Where a lot of the movie works because it's like uh, it, it's like a veiled reference to these classic tropes. Yeah. Yeah. But the voiceover, especially he talks about like his divorce in it. He talks about like, you know, like how like yeah. down and out he is. And it's like, it's like too expositional and it's like it's way it's too expositional to the, to the look of the film. It feels like it's like, you know, like a city of 180 million people and none of them know each other's name. You know, it's like the yeah. sort of like corny yeah. shit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I almost I would love to do yeah. an episode on, almost on ex- how much. Go ahead. I was going to say, I almost expect them to start talking like Humphrey Bogart, you know, now you're seeing, you're people, they don't really know. They kind of did though. Bryant, Bryant had that, come on, Dak, 
I need that old, I need the old Blade Runner, you know. Um, Give me one last shot, kid, and I'll give you a point. (laughs) Which really works in the film, though, too, because the film has that 40s feel, even though it's set way in the future. It's got that, like, future noir that it's new, but it's old. You know, mm-hmm. and that, like alien. To- totally. Um, yeah. So that was my first experience with the film. Uh, and I remember I saw it and I was like, oh, this is interesting. And it didn't do anything. And then I remember when they first released the director's cut. And, and yeah, and I was still growing up in the church that I was growing up in. And I was had friends who were big film buffs. And they're like, oh, man, this director's cut. And so then I remember sitting down and watching it. And I was blown away by it. Um, so different. Yeah, because none of that expositional garbage narration was there. So you had to. It was a story told by landscapes. It turned. It turned yeah. from. It, it it changed into the story that they told you what you were seeing, and t- then mm-hmm. the then the the aesthetics told you what told you the story. You know. Yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah. I don't even think about. I don't even think about the na- the narration version. You know, the, the theatrical. I don't ever think about it. It doesn't even cross my mind. And I've never really thought about it until we started this podcast. Yeah, I haven't seen that version since I was like really, really young, and I, I, all, all I remember is the fact that Deckard is divorced in it, so it kind of like fills in his character in, in a different way. Whereas now it's like you know his his past might not be what you think it is. He might be a lot younger than you realize. He, you know, like it, it's it's like so much more mysterious in his current incarnation. And let alone the fact that this is the one that we the final cut that we see now regularly is the seventh version of this one film. It's like in yeah. so many iterations, mm-hmm. and they're so different. And I, I think it would be amazing to do an episode where we break that down. We talk about how the narrative changed. We talk about why the narrative changed. But you're right. It's, it's one of these movies where you could turn the sound off, although you would miss out on the music. But you could turn the sound off, and it would be an amazing experience, you know? Like, it's so visually rapturous, and it's such a testament to Ridley Scott's visual storytelling style, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That still just, I mean, you can just sit there, and you can just look at it, and, and you don't have to even know what's happening. It still plays like this amazing film. Yeah. It's lyric. It's lyrical. It's it's transcendent. I mean, it's all those kind of big words, you know, that people almost stereotypical mm-hmm. words that people use. But it's really, really true. And yeah. Bla- Blade Runner is a type of movie where I know people. They're like, I just don't get that movie. Um, and it's very cerebral. It's much like a, a film made by Denny Noir, Denny Villeneuve. You know, mm-hmm. um, it's it's a film that feels. It's not a film that tells. Um, yeah. yeah. And uh, that that plays to a very specific kind of person. Um, mm-hmm. It does, and it hits you differently depending on the mood you're in and where you are in your life. Because actually, like Ryan, so so when I saw it, I was probably it was much later than my Alien experience. I was probably mm-hmm. like maybe twelve when I saw it, yeah. and it was a it was a VHS copy of it that I found in like a head shop, which which like I don't know if that's a regional <laughs> term, but like a head shop uh, like where where I am in, in Boston, it's like a sort of a hippie store where like people sell their old like weird shit. Oh, and there was okay. this, like VHS yeah. copy of it, and it said Ridley Scott. And of course, I was like, "Oh my god, I have to watch that." Yeah. And it was this like grainy thing that had been like taped over like something else, <laughs> and it was like so. And it's you know the movie's like so dark, like just in huh. terms of its actual like lumen quality, like it's very dark. Mm-hmm. So on a, on like a crappy VHS transfer on this like CRT from like 1974 that I was yeah. watching it on, I was like, "What? I can't even see what's happening. I couldn't hear anything because like the tape was all worn out." Yeah. Um, and I was bored by it. I was I was like very interested in it, but I, I remember like not really uh, having any idea what was happening. And so then I, I sought out the book because I had read other things by Philip K. Dick. Yeah. And I read the book and I like loved that. And I was like, mm-hmm. okay, let me re-engage with it. And then at another head shop, 
weirdly, apparently, like as a teenager, I just went to every head shop I could find. But there was another head shop where somebody had sold, uh, had a director's cut. And I took that home, and it was much higher quality, and it was also just a better movie. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and it clicked, and I was like, whoa, this is incredible. So since then, I've been so in love with it. And it's one of those mm-hmm. movies that, you know, you re-engage with every few years. I mean, you guys might be different, but for me, it's like, you know, Alien, for me, is a constant engagement with yeah, the source right. material. Like, that is something that, like, I just, I'm always, I have been thinking about constantly, basically, since I was a very young kid. Yeah. But with Blade Runner, it's like, I come back to it at different points in my life. And it informs my yes. worldview, yes. and it informs my sense of self, mm-hmm. and uh, and the things that it says about time passing and about the evanescent quality of life. You know, the fact that like you have the you have the um, the replicants who are obviously on this timetable, but you also have people like JF Sebastian who um, is running out of time in, on his own, mm-hmm. and like. You know, you watch it. You watch it when you're a young person, and time means something very different than it means to you when you're 20 or 30. And and you know, like I said, I'm 32 now, and the most recent time I saw it, you know, now I have kids, I have a, a wife, we have this family, and I was like, wow, like the accelerative quality of time was so much what I took away from that movie. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's just like just so so amazing. So it's cool. It's a movie that changes with you as you. Uh, get older. And, and I, I have every reason to believe for the same reasons Ryan pointed out and the things that I know, uh, Jamie, you've brought up before that Denny Villeneuve is going to just totally nail those same, um, get the same sort of resonant themes and the same quiet storytelling style that will make it basically an eternal film for the same reason, alien and the same reason the original Blade Runner are like basically airtight, eternal documents artistically. Yeah. Like I feel like 2049 has the potential to do that because it's a poem, you know, yeah. Yeah. poetry, poetry when it's well done lasts for, for thousands of years. Yeah. yeah. Like still have poetry that like the Greek uh, poetess Sappho wrote that you can read translations of now, you know, from, I don't know, 4,000 years ago or however long ago that was. And it still hits you in a really direct emotional way where it's like somebody's like reaching through time to talk to you. And to mm-hmm. me, like Blade Runner is a filmic equivalent of that where it's like, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it stays put in time. But as your life progresses, you, you come back to it and it means something evergreen and ever new. Mm-hmm. And it's like a, so cool. And I think that's part of what makes it so good for a podcast because we can just explore it from so many angles, you know? Oh, yeah. And I think that... Uh... It's one of those, the great art, uh, great art is a living thing. Great mm-hmm. art, art that is a ma- that, that are masterworks. They're mm-hmm. continually changing in with us, with culture, with, with the times it becomes, it, it, it is like, I mean, if you think about, uh, science fiction today and what's really kind of the mainstay today, it's dystopian futures. Who started that? Philip K. Dick started that. Sort of. Mm-hmm. I mean, he kind of really put it on the map. And then Blade Runner was the first of it. It was before its time. It was it was this yeah. dystopian future that we see ourselves in in some ways where technology's kind of taken over. Everyone's everyone's wired in or jacked in, but they're not connecting physically. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I, 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 you know, I'm the poster child for that. You know, all my, all my friends, all my communities online, you know. Um, and so mm-hmm. then it you know, culture then creates the sense of aloneness too. That, you, yeah. you know, and, and, uh, that eternal question of where do we belong in this world? That's something that, I, that's something that I asked myself as a young child. And I remember even as a teenager, cause, uh, 92, when they released the director's cut, I was 16. And that's, mm-hmm. so when they released that director's cut, that's the year I met Blade Runner, the director's cut. And that was the year I met Ripley. 
uh, Ellen yeah. Ripley. Uh, in, oh, wow. In, At the same time. In Alien 3, yes. So yeah. it was a very much like, who are we? What What is this? What's going on in the world? What, what matters? Um, and uh, Deckard really, uh, not that I liked him as a character, not that I disliked him, but it, there was something about Deckard that felt like he was speaking for me, that he... Um, that I, I understood his journey. I understood him just kind of feeling like kind of blah in this world that's kind of yeah. happening around him. And he's just this, he's just this passenger on a train that has this job that he doesn't really like, you know? Um, yeah. And to me that continues to be not maybe so much in my life. I mean, there's points, but it continues to be the story that's unfolding. Like, where are we going as a society? What what does all this mean? Um, are we losing ourselves as the rich get richer and the poor get poorer? And there's vast differences between where the poor live and where the rich live. Of course, in Blade Runner, you get the idea that the rich are off world and the poor are left. You know, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And that's com- becoming a reality in the world that we live in. You know, yeah, yeah dude, it totally is. I, so actually, my my day job is with Oxfam, which is a, a global humanitarian organization. Mm-hmm. And uh, and this is something that we really um, engage with a lot, like the disparity of power and disparity of, of um, wealth around the world. And like, you know, so we produce these, um, <clears throat> you know, these studies uh, and accompanying the studies are a lot of these, uh, you know, really powerful images taken by colleagues of mine. And, and they get these like pictures that are just amazing of, of uh, you know, slums in Brazil that are, you know, eight feet away from high rises that are, you know, 60 stories tall that cost, you know, with condos that are a million dollars. And then it's like, if you just dropped a pebble, you know, you would hit, um, a slum full of people whose combined income, a million people is probably equivalent to the income of three people in that condominium complex, you know? And it's, yeah, it's, it's, you're so right about that. Like we, we are living in this future. And, and part of the, the part of why Philip K. Dick um, has been so incredibly relevant for so long is that he really spoke to that, you know, mm-hmm. like great science fiction, you know, whether that be Ray Bradbury or Isaac Asimov or Philip K. Dick or any of these people, yeah. um, are, they, they deal with these themes that are like in their heart, eternally relevant. Like they're, they're things that will never be irrelevant, but they talk, they, they couch them in this fantastical setting so that you can like separate yourself and see it from the outside. Kind of like, I feel yeah. like, like great comedy does that, you know, like, like, mm-hmm. Somebody like like I, I think Louis C.K. is hilarious. Like he's yeah. able to say things in such a ridiculous way that you actually can see the reality in it in a way that you've never seen before. Because like unless you're shocked out of your immediate worldview, it can be hard to see sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I feel like Blade Runner, yeah, totally does that. Like I I, I was noticing the other day um, that I get bumped into a lot more than I used to. Like, I, and it's something that. <laughs> Has just I've been kind of gradually becoming more aware of that. You know, I, I work in in downtown Boston. It's super busy, and I'm just like always. People are like bumping shoulders with me all the time because they're always like on their phones and they're always uh, plugged into their you know headphones and they're completely oblivious to the world yeah. around them. And I'm sure I'm like that too. I'm not you know saying I'm not, but like you know they they don't realize that they're doing it. Just like I don't realize that I'm doing it. Mm-hmm. And it's like we are all becoming so merged with our internal reality filtered through our external devices that the actual physical world around us is becoming something that we have to fight to pay attention to. Yeah. And like in in Blade Runner, you know, in Los Angeles there's 180 million people or something like that. You know, it's this like yeah. metropolis the scale of which, you know, we obviously don't have, but like this mega metropolis and um and yet nobody talks to each other, you know? Yeah. Like yeah. It's it's this Babylonian thing. It's like nobody can even communicate 
they're so bombarded with just imagery and with technology and with distraction that the reality of their experience is this completely um, hidden thing, you know? So yeah, it's, it's yeah. amazing. It's like the more connected they get, it's, they actually get more disconnected with each other. You yeah. know, the more con- yeah. plugged in they are to this, you know, like today, the more we're plugged into social media and the internet and all that, we're actually becoming more disconnected with, you know, what's really going on and with relationships and things like that. It just uh, becomes more watered down. And, uh, you know, I'm, it's kind of funny. I was thinking of, uh, Wally, I don't know. If, I mean, you guys. Oh my god! Oh, totally. That is, that is such <laughs> a fucking masterpiece. Yeah, yeah. that's amazing. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah. But, you do a Wally uh, podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah um, oh yeah, Wally's amazing. Um, but just, I mean, they cut, they explore it obviously more in a humorous way. But you know, just seeing the people in their little pods and they're just. They're all like really, you know, obese or overweight, and they're just uh, told, not even paying attention to each other. They're just looking at their screens and, you know, basically online, and not, and there's no connection. Um, and then when the the system goes down, and then they have to interact with one another, it's a mm. super awkward experience. Um, and uh, it just, you know, I think you know, Wally and Blade Runner and movies like that that have even like Metropolis from way back in the 1920s. Oh my God, I love, yeah, again, awesome. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, they just, they, they have these universal themes that um, they're just timeless and they're, they're going to carry on um, 50, 100, 1,000 years from now. I mean, it's, they'll never, um, they'll never be dated, I, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. They'll never um, lose that, that importance to how they speak about what they say about society. Um, and, uh, and that's, that's Blade Runner. That's what makes, I mean, that's well part of what makes it such a masterpiece, but it's a big part. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it makes, also Thank makes you. me think about that movie, Her. Have you guys seen that? Yeah. Another great, dude, you guys, I'm telling you, <laughs> great taste in movies. That's another one. <laughs> Her is amazing. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. And it's exactly what Wally, um, kind of explores. Well, Wally doesn't really explore that. It's just kind of there, but Her, if you, you know, uh, Joaquin Phoenix's character is walking around LA or wherever. I mean, it's in Los Angeles where it takes place, yeah. and everyone's on their phone talking yeah. to their uh, their virtual reality assistant, or you know, he's talking to his OS. Um, yeah, yeah. So that's what the experience is. Everyone's experiencing. They're out in the world, but they're but they're jacked into a a, a virtual world, even in the real world setting. So right. they're not looking at the sun beating down on them. They're looking at their phone. And part of that... Right, they're taking a video of the sun beating down on them. Totally. And, yeah. and also there's been science... There's been scientific studies about um, the addiction of social media or getting a notification, um, mm-hmm. getting... Saying, hey, someone's like this. And how endorphins go off in our in our, in our our brain. Like, oh, this is important. So it's, mm-hmm. it's culturing that addiction. Um, yeah. And I almost feel like her is the society of Blade Runner before it all fell apart. Like that's what it was, yeah. you know. Because yeah. just yeah. it just remind it just makes me think of. Anyways, I'm just kind of mentioning that as like this dystopia that Blade Runner has really laid the groundwork for. You know. Right. Yeah. I don't. Think, you know, I think it'd be so cool to do a whole episode where we discuss how these similar themes have been dealt with in other films and absolutely. also just in other media. I mean. You know, going back to like Pygmalion, you know, this this idea of like a, a manufactured object coming to life and then falling in love with it. I mean, mm-hmm. that's like a it's a theme that we've been talking about for, you know, 
since the beginning. Actually, so so for the listeners who don't know me well yet, I'm a composer of uh, contemporary classical music, whatever that means. <laughs> I, write, I write music, <laughs> and uh, and I, I wrote a whole piece on artificial intelligence um, a few oh, wow. years ago called uh, it was called machine language for beginners. And um, and that's something I, I would love to talk about, maybe even play excerpts from or something on an episode at some point, yeah. because uh, no, I, I, what, what no, I, <laughs> <laughs> we will not have that on this. <laughs> How dare you, sir? How but, dare you? <laughs> but that, that, the whole idea for that piece came out of an interaction I had with my iPhone one morning. And this is like this is like six years ago now, but I, I didn't know what the weather was like and I had to go to work. And so I just said, like, hey, Siri, do I need a coat today? Without even thinking about it, I was brushing my teeth, and Siri was like, yes, it's 44 degrees outside. You should bring a coat. Wow. <laughs> and I, I, and what the reason why that stuck with me enough to write you know, a, an evening-length piece for chamber orchestra uh, about chamber ensemble was that I hadn't even thought of how weird it was that I was doing that. It was like I was talking to somebody who was there. Uh, and, and the important thing is that it had gone from the phone being an extension of myself, because I feel like that's sort of what we think of when we think of our phones. It's like these, you know, appliance extensions, but it had gone that to me perceiving my phone as almost another person as like somebody there next to me telling me as a human what to do. Um, and being like my completely dependable sidekick. Yeah. And so I could not get that out of my head for, for weeks, and, and I decided that I was going to get a grant and, and write this piece. And what I did with the piece was I went back through history, and I was like, when have we talked about artificial intelligence? Like, when does stuff like that start? And, I, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's things about Hephaestus creating these um, golden tripods to yeah. basically to guilt the gods who had banished him into the underworld into, like, seeing his brilliance. And he created these automatous robots, like – um, and, you know, going all the way through to uh, HAL 9000, you know, 2001 A Space Odyssey, just these ways that we've, as a species, since we started writing things down, have been trying to talk about what's happening um, in terms of our increasingly synthetic experience. And right. Blade Runner, to me, part of why it works so well is it is like, it's like an apotheosis of that. It's, it's a world yeah. where synthetic experience and our organic experience are completely impossible to separate from one another. And you see these things like, you know, Ray Kurzweil is a futurist uh, who writes extensively about things like the singularity where, you know, humans and our technology will become indecipherable from one another and we will like theoretically be able to live forever. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, conferences about these things where they say like the year, I think it's 20. Oh my God. I just, fuck. I just realized this It's 2049. That's (laughs) I want, there's got to be a reason for that because in 2040, according to this emergent futurist thing about the singularity, supposedly we will become immortal because we will be um, we will be so much of a machine that the machine will be able to repair itself indefinitely. And holy shit, I totally just realized that that's probably has something to do with why they're setting it. Then there must be some kind of a reference to that. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, actually, well, Jamie's pointed out a couple times that he thinks. Um, tell me if I'm wrong, Jamie, but that. In 2049, the world's pretty much filled with replicants. Uh, And oh uh, yeah, that's my theory. That your theory, yeah, yeah, yeah. That actually everyone's a replicant, and it's replicants. It's but no one knows it. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. And and actually, I was thinking too. It would be interesting. Maybe even the the secret of the the secret. Just is just presupposition and we'll get into this eventually in other episodes but um maybe the idea even in the first blade runner film is that everyone still is a replicant but they think they're human um but really those who know is everyone is a replicant and they make subservient models for themselves so it's really the rich making the poor 
I see. You know, yeah. Um, yeah, that is fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And possibly completely accurate. Right. Um, but yeah. Yes. So, so what if uh, we? I, I'm interested in in terms of Blade Runner. Like, what are um, sequences of the film, and it can be more than one, obviously, uh, that have moved you guys, or something that you think about quite a bit. Uh, yeah, go. You can go ahead first, Patrick. Well, I, I mean, I, I think I, I I I just really am so affected by Roy as a character, and actually, uh, there's an upcoming Perfect Organism um, episode where uh, Jamie and I go into this a little bit so i'll try not to repeat myself too much but um i I feel like like roy is just so interesting because my entire life i've kind of rooted for him even though like you know he he fucking crushes a skull with his bare hand he's obviously a sadistic person (laughs) but see but there i go like he's not a person he's a he's he's a robot but i I can't help but see him as a as a person and i Mm -hmm. think because he's like kind of the most alive of any character in that thing he fights so fucking hard to to get life to, to yeah. live, you know? so he's like the, the most human character in the whole movie to mm-hmm. me. But I think the sequence to me is, um, and I'm sorry, I'm probably going to take away the, what you both wanted to talk about. Uh-huh. But um, the last the last like 20 minutes of the film, you know, with the whole sort of haunted house sequence in Sebastian's house, where uh, in his compound, yeah, um, when he realizes that he's the last <clears throat> replicant of his group, and he is uh, just doing this this crazy shit where he's like um, treating that knowledge not with like uh depression and not even with aggression but with a weird playfulness Mm -hmm. where he is playing games with deckard and he's like scaring him and then doing things that are very funny almost like uh you know almost like um like uh circus kind of antics yeah and and, like deliberately extending deckard's time because like i mean i I think it's, it's pretty clear that if he wanted to he could have just decapitated deckard in like you know 10 minutes yeah uh, because like you know for one thing he can't use his hand deck can't use his hand and he's yeah. like you know, been beaten up so many times and he's like you know also and also like deckard doesn't even want to live i mean maybe by this point in the film he does and we can talk about that but he's like basically a despondent depressive person and roy is is giving him life by making him realize the value of it by endangering him in a way that is prolonged and intentful and really fucking scary and also really funny, and and I feel like that whole sequence is so powerful, culminating, of course, in the famous uh, monologue at the end, yeah. which I think is just is just about the the most poetic expression yeah. um, I can think of in, in any in any movie. I think the tears mm-hmm. and rain monologue, which of course was semi improvised, I mean I, I think that is a moment of, of complete cinematic transcendence that is unforgettably beautiful, mm-hmm. and says so much about the the like I said the evanescent beauty of our living experience. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, I'm thinking now, and I, I want to hear your moments too in a second, but I'm just thinking about what I was talking about with the singularity thing. And listeners, if you know more about this than I do, which you probably do, please by all means write into the show and correct me. But <laughs> but the way that I understand it is is that like these futurists believe that by 2049 we will be indistinguishable from our our machines. It's it's interesting that um, that in doing that, in becoming immortal, we would be losing the the fundamental, beautiful urgency of our living experience, you know? Yeah. Like, there's a reason why we get so emotional about knowing that we don't have time left, because, like, knowing that we don't, knowing that we have a ticking clock means that every passing moment is is carries with it a gravity that if you didn't have to worry about that, you know, um, it yeah. would lose that, that immediacy. And it's something that I, I've thought about quite a lot, and I think that, um, that Roy just completely 
nails that point in a way that I can't think of any other film character in history doing. And it's that last sequence that really sells that for me. How about you guys? Yeah, I mean, the, um, you know, the idea that, you know, now we're immortal, it kind of, the, the value of life becomes sort of devalued in a way, you know, it's almost, uh, I, I just have this vision of, you know, all these people feeling like they're immortal and now there's no real like fear of, you know, your time on earth ending. And, uh, it's, uh, yeah, it kind of dilutes it a little bit in, in my mind, you know, rather than, you know, there's all these stories and things about, you know, people wanting to, in movies about people wanting to pursue immortality and all that. And, um, I almost feel like that's, uh, in a way, if, if that's where society's going, that might actually have a, a detrimental effect, um, you know, for, for people uh, in terms of, you know, valuing, valuing their own lives or other people's lives. It just, um, there, you lose that, there's, you lose that kind of preciousness to it. Yeah. You, you know, as you're talking, I'm thinking of another thing that I, I would love to talk about on the show with you guys. And I think, Jamie, you brought this movie up before, is The Fountain by Darren Aronofsky. It's Absolutely. It's like one of, one of my favorite films of all time. And it really goes into that theme. So I just want to flag that. Like, and that soundtrack, that soundtrack to The Fountain's oh, amazing. Oh, man. Oh, I love it. I know. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah Ryan, that's that's a really that's a really good point. Yeah. And I really, I mean, I would, I really like, I remember when I saw the sequence where, Roy confronts uh, Tyrell and, uh, you know, and he kisses him. And then, you know, basically, you know, like you said, Patrick crushes his skull after. I just remember being so terrified by that, um, you know. Yeah, as a kid, uh, I didn't actually see that sequence until I was oh, like okay. 15 because I always closed my eyes because I was too afraid of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, um, and actually Covenant kind of parallels that. Alien Covenant parallels that a little bit too. Um, but... Uh, but yeah, there's uh, there's just this um, there's this beauty to Roy as a as a character, and this um, he's sinister, but he's um, he's also like genuine. He you know, like you say, he toys with with Deckard, but then he saves him too by grabbing yeah. him as he's falling, and uh, you know, it's uh, there's within him kind of this this struggle for you know this almost like he's struggling with his humanity, like trying to grasp humanity while being not, not actually human. Mm -hmm. And it kind of delves more into that theme of like, what, what does actually make us human? You know, um, who is human are maybe these replicants are more human than human. You know, you never, um, and it just, it's, a, that's just the amazing part about Blade Runner and all other, you know, phenomenal sci-fi movies is these big questions they ask and get people thinking about them, you know, 35 years later. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, and they become even more relevant over time. Um, and yeah, so that's, yeah. I mean, imagine like, so say theoretically, this podcast is still going in 35 years from now, <laughs> which, which would be what hey, guys. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, that'd be 2052. Imagine, I mean, which, you know, at which point we would have crossed over into immortality according to yeah, right. think about how, what this conversation will be like then. I mean, like when, when, when Blade Runner came out, the world was like completely different from it is now. I mean, we didn't, we didn't even have like a worldwide internet yet, you know? Yeah. Um, let alone the collective uh, recorded knowledge of humanity in our hip pocket, you know? I mean, it's, right. it's, it's insane to think what this will look like then, like, you know, where we'll go. 
Yeah. What, Jamie, what, what, what about you? What's, what's the sequence that sticks out to you? Um, there's so much, but I will say, uh, there's the one that I, I think about the most on a daily basis is when after uh, after uh, Deckard has had a conversation with Tyrell about Rachel and then Rachel not, it not knowing what it is and he all of a sudden it's not a woman to him it's an it and then Rachel comes over to his apartment and you see in her eyes um, her world being destroyed. And she's got her pictures in her hand of her. She's like, look, this is me and my mother. But it's obviously it's not. And he's like, it's not you and your mother. That's Tyrell's niece and her mother. Um, and so she's got this evidence in her hand. And even that is an evidence. It's a lie. Um, and so you right. see her world destroyed and her face. Her face plays it all is playing it all out and she's looking at Deckard like please give me some hope please give me some hope and he can't and he's not interested in giving her hope he doesn't view her he just doesn't give a shit you know um the only reason why uh he uh, like he's just kind of indulging her like he's just like what you know we can talk or whatever he doesn't really care he doesn't care for her in that moment um, and then he eventually obviously offers her a, offers her a drink and you see her realizing that I'm not going to get anything out of this guy. So I'm leaving and she leaves his apartment. Um, but just that, that interaction. Um, and it's not just, it's her dealing with the idea of, well, who am I? What am I? And him not helping her, not saying, oh, it's not, well, and then he, you know, eventually goes, ah, okay. It's not true. It's all a lie. Yeah, I'm, but it's like I'm, a totally half. Oh, totally. Like, yeah, you know, like he. Yeah. yeah, he's totally being uh, snarky about it. He and she knows that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but just her dealing with and it poses questions to me, like what are we with? Who are we without our memories? You know. Yeah. And and in one moment, and I said this before, I think uh, Patrick, when you and I were speaking, I can't remember. In one moment, she was kind of an elite. I work at the Tyrell Corporation. I have fo- I have purpose. I have drive. I, this is why I'm alive too. Now I'm I'm human garbage. Now I'm a subservient. Now I I'm just this thing, and it, it, to me it also asks this question: is, so we find out she's different. So because the government that's on Earth at that point, or the police, or whatever, finds out that she's not what she says she is because she's passing, she then becomes hunted, um, right. because she's different. Um, just, you know, even though she's sentient, she has her own life, she's a living, breathing, whatever she is, but she's different. Um, yeah. And then she's declared as an invalid to kind of throw yeah. back to Gattaca. Um, and uh, that struggle is all over her face and she's not saying much, but you see it. And to me, that was the soul of the film. Like, But again, she's posing these questions to Deckard, who's also asking these questions himself. I don't, yeah. Where do I belong? Who am I? And he's not asking these right. questions audibly. And for to me, that's the heart of the film. Um, and 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 in and, and a certain way, and I, I replay those scenes in my head over, over and over and over every day. Yeah, because they're always relevant. Because because yeah. we, we all ask ourselves that question. Yeah. You know? Every day, to some mm-hmm. degree, whether we vocalize it or whether we actually consciously consider it or not. We wonder, like, who are we? Like, what are we doing? Like, like, what? Why? Why am I getting up in the morning? Like, what is my purpose every day? You yeah. know. And it can be easy sometimes to to feel. I mean, when you think about like what we put ourselves through just on a day to day basis of like you know getting up, 
going to work, putting all this time in, you know, producing podcasts like this. You know, we, uh, you know, uh, we, we, we put all of this effort in day in and day out without ever really stopping and considering why, you know, it's like, we're like, yeah. I mean, there's reasons, you know, whether that be for financial stability or for like, you know, our families or for, for whatever, but like, but, but really like we are, we are not as in control of our own boats as we think we are. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think coming to terms with that is a really, uh, sometimes painful and really beautiful, powerful thing. And it's cool that you bring up that scene because you're right. Deckard is, dealing with those themes in a very slow way, kind of tectonic way. Like he is just sort of in this morass of like, what is my purpose? Like, why am I here? Like, what, why am I even putting this fucking trench coat on? Like, why, like why even go, go um, back to police headquarters? Yeah. Um, like, you know, like I don't like this job. It's been weighing on me. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm alone. You know, I'm drinking. I'm just sitting here watching memories on a TV screen. Like, whereas uh, Rachel, like for her, it happens in a flash. It's an instant. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and it's, it's, you're right. It's a cool juxtaposition to see two people grappling with the same thing, but on completely different timescales and from different angles. And they're both doing it at the same time, like almost like a two-sided coin, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And Rachel is, Rachel is also dealing with now my life is in danger because I'm not what I thought I was. Um, now I'm in danger of, she doesn't know what her incept date is. She doesn't know if she has a four year lifespan. I don't think any of us really know that because she's a Nexus six, but we don't know if she was built with the same, um, protocols or whatever, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, Mm -hmm. so her, there's urgency with her. It's, I'm falling apart and my, where do I go? Because my life's in danger and who's going to, what if I go North? What, you know? Um, and because, Rick Deckard is presumably a human. It's a question we're, we're always asking. Is he a human? Is he a replicant? He, right. His life isn't in danger. So he can ponder those questions in the comfort of his of his um, apartment. And which is interesting because it, it also throws back, it's a throwback to American history or the history of the world where you have these people where, um, whether it was a time of slavery or all other times like, being who you are is a threat to the, the, the ruling class. And mm-hmm. um, I can talk about you with this, but if I'm caught, they're going to throw me back on the, the back on the plantation or they're going to send me back to Ireland because the Irish were also viewed as kind of trash and garbage people. I mean, mm-hmm. these conversations were being had all the time where the ruling class could ponder these ideas, but with the, 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 cert, the class that, like even in England, you know, that, you know, you had many years of that caste system where you were poor and you were broke and you could ponder those ideas, but you also were very close to either poverty or starvation. Um, right. So you couldn't do that. You know, there's a luxury in pondering these philosophical questions of who am I and what am I? And then, oh, I'm going to go to bed and I'm going to eat some pizza, you know, mm-hmm. and, and I'll ponder these questions in the morning as opposed to who am I? Where do I belong? but I'm a part of a class of people that are seen as garbage or, 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 or slaves, you know? So Mm -hmm. I, and I think those are questions we continue dealing with too. Like people who are mistreated by whether it's police or, you know, uh, government agencies differently than other people are treated. So these are questions, you know, we, we deal with the kind of these replicant like questions today. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. And and it's interesting that like it like that th- those issues have been here this entire time, but yeah. through history they become increasingly increasingly less discussed. You know, like like they've been like 
like it, it's a, a lot of the 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 you know racism or um, genderism or you know uh, anti minority thing or you know I don't want to get into politics but but a lot of the attitudes that are um, repressive and regressive are just increasingly less talked about and so when people you know like whereas like in the 19th century like if an Irish person was standing in the street you know like uh, somebody who was like uh, you know of German descent or something could throw a rock at that person and call him you know uh, an asshole and, and everybody would laugh about it and be like yeah fine but you know nowadays yeah. if somebody does that to an African-American in public like there will be pushback about it so yeah. like so yeah. those things don't don't happen as yeah. visibly but but they do happen yeah every single day yeah and when and when and when those things are brought to the forefront like we've seen you know in ferguson and and met you know so many other cases when 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 people are forced to question whether or not they have been contributing to the subjugation of other people they bristle and get really aggressive about it yes and yes. see these um these outpourings of conflict that i think really echo in a lot of ways what was happening um, in Blade Runner, you yeah, know? Yeah. Like, I think that that's completely still accurate. And I have to say, I, I know we got to wrap up soon, but I, I, I just got back from India. Um, and it was my first time over there. I wanted to go since I was a little kid. And I was there for work. It was an amazing trip. I got to meet some incredible people. Um, and it was, and I ate so much that I gained like 9,000 pounds. And so I'm going to be talking to Ryan about getting on a personal training. Lamb <laughs> Vindaloo. It is so good. I was there. I was so struck by the fact that the caste system is still completely present and still actually forced. And and, and it was something that, you know, you intellectually know about. It was something that I, I I was prepared to like experience. But when you're there, like there are people there who in, in, in an office where I was working, whose job it was to just clean up after the visiting guests after they used the bathroom. And like their, their whole office was a, a broom closet wow. attached to the bathroom and like I would go in there and like pee and then I would come out and like these people would just rush in and clean it and then rush out and then they would come bring me snacks and I and I would be like thank you so so much you don't have to do that you know but but and they would they would avoid talking to me they would just move away and mm-hmm. and I and it was really bothering me a lot and then I asked um some friends of mine who are Indian I was like what, what's happening with that and they were like that is that is their caste and that and they have to do jobs like that and they don't really have a, a say in it. Um, and again, if I'm oversimplifying this, and we have any Indian listeners who who would like to explain more to me, please by all means get in touch with the podcast. But to me, that was something that I really took away from that experience. Yeah, totally, um, I found so incredibly powerful. And I have other stories from that trip that I would love to talk about on other episodes because I saw a ton of Blade Runner um, in in. I was in New Delhi. I saw a ton I of bet. it there. I bet. I and you know uh, to kind of wrap up this section as we kind of will our last segment we can talk about our excitement for 2049 but uh uh to people who don't know philip k dick his impetus or his inspiration for writing blade runner started with a couple of things one thing uh he was listening to an interview of with an ss officer um who was i believe was in charge or involved in exterminating jews and uh, he was fascinated because this SS officer didn't have a problem because he did not view Jews as people. Wow. And if you look at Blade Runner, uh, replicants were not viewed as people. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're not people. You look like us. You sound like us. You're sentient. You you know you have your own life, but you're not people. So we're killing you. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was no thought. Um, there was kind of whatever, you know, that there was a whole, obviously the whole Blade Runner unit was kind of like an SS unit almost. Yeah. Exterminate. These totally. People, you know, totally. and I think Deckard had some moral 
issues with that um, that he was kind of afraid to say because that's his job, you know? Yeah. Um, and is he complicit in that? He's just, and I mean, even the whole, and we've talked about this before, that whole sequence of the death of Zora, that sequence mm-hmm. is heartbreaking. You know, yeah. this woman just wanted to live in her, her last, mm-hmm. however many years she had live and just live her life. And mm-hmm. she couldn't because she was seen as not human. And you, right. how dare you not be human on this planet? You're leaving, mm-hmm. you know. Right. And, and I think also the reflection of, um, look at what humanity has done to the natural world, the the extinction of animals, the uh-huh. you yeah. know, um, uh, the whole the whole controversy with SeaWorld and the you know the whales and all that stuff and. All this has happened because, you know, the circuses and the, the animals in the circus, well, they're not human, so who cares, you know? Mm-hmm. And now there's a big pushback against that, like, yeah, they're not human, but they're life and they deserve to live, you know? Right. And they deserve mm-hmm. th- to be happy or whatever yeah. and live their lives in the ocean because that's where they belong. And yeah. that pushback has been so huge that SeaWorld has ended those programs and they're not going to be breeding mm-hmm. anymore uh, orcas and um, right. just – you know, and there's many kind of things happening in this in the world today that are, you know, the freeing of animals from circuses or animals as uh, as kind of slave labor. It's it's all changing. It's really yeah. changing. So, anyways, to kind of wrap that up, uh, what Philip K. You know, these these questions and these things that we're talking about, Philip K. Dick was highly aware of, and that was mm-hmm. his that. And you guys know this, so I don't, maybe some of our listeners don't, but I I just think it was important to kind of say. Yeah, and just yeah. hearing you talk about that, there are so many amazing episodes in this podcast that I, I'm I, I'm already I, they're already kind of bubbling up during this right. conversation. Totally. And I can't wait to see where this goes. Yeah. I can't yeah. wait to do this adventure with you guys. Yeah, mm-hmm. me too. Uh, yeah. So, last comments. Then what? Let's. What did you and let's maybe do this a few minutes each, just because we yeah. uh, let's go to about an hour. But uh, what did you guys? What? How are you feeling about twenty forty nine? Well, I, I can start. Um, yeah. So o- over the last few years, Denny Villeneuve has become, I think, my favorite living director. And I say that as somebody who's like this um, Paul Thomas Anderson, like, you know, uh, huge, 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 huge fan. I, I and, and for years, I thought he was like just going to be my number one no matter what. Yeah. Um, I kind of I kind of think that Denny Villeneuve has surpassed uh, Anderson for me. And, mm-hmm. and it's I, I really, truly didn't think that was possible. But yeah. it started off when I saw Prisoners and I was just like. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I have not felt that unnerved by a film in yeah. such a long time. I mean, I was nauseous during that movie, even mm-hmm. when it wasn't like overtly violent or gory. Just the sense of dread and the mm-hmm. sense of inevitability and mm-hmm. darkness, and the sense of attention to framing and detail yeah. and pacing and soundtrack. The way that like you know, it, it he has the close-ups on the back of the of the RV when it's in the neighborhood, and like all you see is the taillight, and it's just like the camera was strapped to it, and it's just slowly mm-hmm. driving along. Like these these very bold visual choices that are beautiful from a cinematographic standpoint, but also just narratively really, really resonant. Like I, I just thought it was such a great filmmaker. And mm-hmm. then um, <clears throat> everything that he's done since then, like Sicario, I mean, just, oh. it's oh, just, I mean, yeah. I've seen that like fucking 30 times. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. so yeah. good yeah. and so real, you know, in, in a way that um, it kind of reminds me of like Michael Mann's heat. It's like, it feels like you're watching a documentary, but like yeah. you shouldn't be seeing it. You know what I mean? It's like so realistic and the performances are so good. Yeah. Um, and then of course, like, you know, Arrival, I, I mean, it's just oh, one yeah. of the best science fiction films I have ever seen. And I say that as somebody who's enough of a sci-fi fan yeah. to be fucking on a podcast 
talking about science fiction. Like, yeah. <laughs> I think Arrival is like an amazing masterpiece. Yeah, so I agree. When, when I found out that he was doing 2049, I, my jaw hit the floor. I thought, yeah. if there is one person on the planet that I would want to tackle Blade Runner, it would be him. Yeah. yeah. And similarly, and this is not for this podcast or for this episode necessarily, but I think he'd be a great alien director because I think that he really captures what um, Ridley Scott is, is, is about when he's at his best. And that mm-hmm. is very strong, very, very thoughtful, very paced storytelling. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just think just, I mean, the, the imagery from these trailers is, is indelible. Like I already mm-hmm. have such a sense for what this world is going to look like for myself. Yeah. I mean, right along with what you were saying, Patrick, about, um, you know, the first time I saw prisoners, um, I was just mesmerized by this movie and, not just the performances and you know, the narrative is the just the direction. Like I hadn't really seen a movie like that with that kind of the, there was a distinct style to it, um, and also the just this pacing and the quietness of it, and letting these some scenes um, just speak for themselves. Um, you know, even with you know without the dialogue, it was just uh, it was just so well done and watching. Um, you know, Hugh Jackman's character Dover just, um, you know, spiral downward as, uh, you know, and kind of become almost, you know, less human as, uh, as the movie goes on. And you see that scene where he's severely beating that, um, mentally disabled person played by Paul Dano. And, uh, you know, there was just, um, there's so many just, you know, terrifying scenes, um, you know, and not like the jump scare type, just this, this sense of dread in it um, that I was just so fascinated by. And so I, I can't wait to see this guy's next movie. And then Sicario comes out um, and the 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 premise of it, like I, I wasn't that into. But just but when I saw the movie, I was like, this is one of the best movies um, regarding this kind of subject that I'd ever seen easily. Um, and it was just, it just, I was so enthralled by it and, um, and I just, uh, and then Arrival came out and I was blown away by it, even though some, some idiot on YouTube totally spoiled some of the big twists. Oh in it no. <laughs> um, oh, shit. yeah, I was so pissed off cause it was a YouTube, um, of the, uh, the trailer and then some guy, um, you know, down, I was reading just some like responses and some guy just gave away stuff from the short story. Um, yeah, I was yeah. so pissed, but I still was still, I was still blown away by, by the movie and, um, some stuff was still surprising to me, but, uh, but yeah, I just thought it was a fantastic movie. So I feel like, um, I, that's the main reason or probably the biggest reason I'm looking, so looking forward to Blade Runner 2049 is Denny Villeneuve. Yeah. He's just, um, like with Patrick, I think he's right up there with Christopher Nolan as my favorite director working today. And I just think he's fantastic. I think both of those guys get it. They just get what makes a great film. And it's, it's right. poetic, you know, that it's telling you or it's, it's speaking to you without being, you know, just direct. It's like, it's, it's cerebral. Yeah. It's, yeah. Cerebral. Um, and that's what great. That's what I really resonate with was films or these, mm-hmm. um, you know, ones that don't uh, that aren't just so you know direct or so much exposition or um, 
you know, I felt like Prometheus was kind of that way, um, you know, and there's too much talking and scenes. I know Jamie's talked about that a lot. Just too much where people just don't shut up. And but with Denis Villeneuve and Christopher Nolan, um, there's a lot of quiet to it. And there's just this, um, you can almost, I, I could see them both making a silent film and making a masterpiece out of it, mm-hmm. you know, yep. um, and, uh, yeah, so I, and then, yeah, obviously the trailer just got me even more excited. Like there's just so much mystery to it. I want to know who Jared Leto, Leto's character is. Um, there's that scene in the hallway where, um, or there's that large hall with those, uh, bodies in like cases. Um, it's just like a quick one second shot, but, uh, I'm like, man, what am I lo- looking at? Are those different like replicants or. You know, and there's one there kind of on the right side that sort of looks like an engineer from, you know, Prometheus. Hey, uh, good. What's going on? <laughs> you know, it might be nothing, but um, I was just, uh, I'm just so, I can't wait. I think it's two months away or October 6th. Yeah, October 6th. Two so. months, yeah. Yeah, so, dude. I I'm, mean, even the, fact, even the fact that you're referencing that one second shot and you notice that one of them looks kind of engineering. Yeah. I think speaks so much to the the quality of the visual imagery, even just in this trailer. Like, because right. mm-hmm. I, I, me too. I'm noticing these. Like, I, I remember every single shot of this thing. Yeah. Um, and it's and even though it's just this like brief trailer where there's all this shit going on, like the 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 images are so strong. Um, a, a movie that that Jamie and I both love, which I don't know if you've seen, Ryan, um, is Enemy. Have you seen that? Oh, I still haven't. Yeah. So That's, good. Okay. That's another so Denny so Villeneuve. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that is like, I mean. In ter- so so it's a movie that's extremely strange it's like a very avant-garde film yeah but it's so confidently made yeah and it's so brilliantly shot that it's like you just sort of surrender to the power of the images in it mm-hmm. and um and like to me like a great film can do that and, and I, I that that as of now might be my favorite denny villeneuve movie i have seen it like so many times oh it's wow like, okay it's just like this it's like it's like walking into a living poem yeah. And coming out of it, looking at the world differently. It's like just mm-hmm. fucking incredible. Yeah. Jamie, you didn't get to talk yet about this. What, what, are, what, are, you, what are you feeling about it? Um, when I first heard of it, heard of uh, the Blade Runner film, I had only heard it being talked about. I didn't know that. I don't think Denny Villeneuve had been attached to it yet. Um, and I was skeptical um, just because it's hard to do sci-fi in general. Um it is a hard subject to do. I mean, there's mostly shitty sci-fi. The great, <laughs> the great sci-fi. It's either really good or it isn't. Um, really, that's right. that's what I think. Um, and it's hard to do great sci-fi. And I think real good sci-fi, great sci-fi, um, is 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 layered. It's it's intricate. It's it, it works on many levels and it stays in our consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of film, not a lot of film, but there's some films throughout the past few years that are, that have worked for me, like, um, predestination, um, yeah. and parts of synchronicity, um, that are really kind of tapping into what great sci-fi is. So I was, I was interested. Yeah. You have to see predestination, uh, Patrick, if you I, haven't I have seen, not it. seen it. I don't even know what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. It's, yeah. it what stars it? Ethan Hawke. Um, I can't what? really, yeah, I, it's, it's, it's kind of about time travel, but that's all I can say. It's a mind all fuck. Right, all right, I'm going to watch it. I'll it's watch a total it. mind fuck. Like, I, yeah. at the end of it, I didn't even know what I watched. 
anyways um that's that's what i love so <laughs> me too me too and it kept me i would rather leave a movie going what the fuck just happened yeah. i can't wait to sit again you know what totally. I mean? like i feel like that's 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 when you know it's good totally mm-hmm. and uh so when i heard and then i heard, read the one quote from harrison ford that we discussed about him saying that this is uh it's the best script he's ever read but then i also remembered yeah but you also did aliens versus cowboys um <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> uh which was awful uh which also was written in part by damon lindelof so no surprise there um uh but uh I, so i was a little bit skeptical because i love blade runner so much but then uh you know then all of a sudden i heard that uh De- denny villeneuve was attached to it and then i also after seeing all those films i realized this man hasn't made a bad film and his films aren't just good they're heady they're complicated. Mm-hmm. They're they're intricate. They're yeah. they're patient. They tell their story the story with um, the the uh, the landscape as opposed to just talking, 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 exposition after exposition. Like I watched this film the other day called or last night called Babylon AD with Vin Diesel, and that's kind of all you need to know. Um, just <laughs> just because I wanted to watch a sci fi film, and I I'd heard some things about it, and it was it was shitty. It was just shit. It yeah. was had some interesting things, some callbacks to. Uh, Big callbacks to Blade Runner in the visuals, yeah. and there's even a post that says Nexus on a on a big uh, building. Um, yeah. But uh, knowing Denny Villeneuve, I have been excited, and I'm also, and I, I'm I was I was also cautious too because I didn't I don't think Ridley Scott is the where he we used to be in terms of a filmmaker. He's a very different type of filmmaker. And I'm not sure he's the best fit to direct a Blade Runner film. And uh, I felt like I my my concern was kind of massaged away knowing that we have this very competent, very humble, very transparent director. I just I, I yeah. feel like the film was in good hands. Um yeah. we don't know that for sure. It's a tough thing. I think no one wants the job of making a sequel to Blade Runner. I mean, it's it's <laughs> crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, it's the that? toughest job in the world in terms of filmmaking. I mean, it just he's he has to pull off the impossible, and I think only he could do it. And yeah. within the, within a very because his movies until now, like um, they have been positioned as sort of like independent features, even though they they haven't been. But you know, but um, but they've been they've been positioned as sort of like art house releases by a big studio mm-hmm. whereas this has a budget of a blockbuster this yeah. is like a tentpole movie you know yeah. what i mean yeah and and when you get that kind of budget uh the studio gets a lot more input into what happens and when you bring on um a creative team like hans zimmer is, is now attached to it you know ridley scott is producing it these like kind of just gargantuan figures yeah. like there's a lot of expectations and there's a lot of people telling you what you can and you can't do yeah and, and you have to have the right temperament as a director to know what to push back against and to right. know that, like that it is better to um to to make the right film than to uh and and, and be told you can't do it and be kicked off the project than to make a bad film that will just do a disservice to the material you absolutely know? And and I, I mean I have every reason to believe that he's going to do a tremendous service to it. But if he doesn't, then um, I will be uh, the first to admit it. But yeah, I, I'm with you guys. I think this is going to be incredible. I I, I I can't wait to have be in a situation where I might have a new top three favorite film of all time. Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned music briefly. I mean the heart, the 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 difficulty. Another difficulty with tackling a a sequel to, essentially what I believe in terms of the director's cut and the final cut is a perfect thing. Um, 
and we discussed the music being a character in and of itself. The mu- the music for 2049 also has to be a character in and of itself. Something that's yeah. different, something that isn't replicating, excuse the pun. Um, nice. <laughs> uh, well played. V- Vangelis' music. It can't be Vangelis all over again. We have a so- score by Vangelis. We need something different, yet just as a motive, yet just as much of a character um, that's beautiful, that's haunting, that's, that's lyrical, that's also not the same thing we've heard. Imagine mm-hmm. that. No, of course they've called in these other... You know, uh, Hans Zimmer working with Johan Johan Johansson, and then there's some other guy working with uh, Hans Zimmer. I yeah. can't remember his name, but and it's kind of funny too because some people heard that and they thought, "Oh no, it's in trouble." And only it, you know, Vangelis didn't need anyone else; he just did it all alone. Um, but Vangelis is also a corporation in and of himself. I mean, the man is a genius; he's a savant. Um, mm-hmm. And I love Hans Zimmer. I, I listen to some of his work probably on a weekly basis. Um, mm-hmm. The score that Johan Johansson did for Arrival is immense and different. Oh, it's so and cool. so, It's yeah. gorgeous. Um, yeah. But Blade Runner, the world of Blade Runner, is no small potatoes. And they better have other people helping out because it has to be perfect. Yeah, I, I'm okay with that too. And also it's important to recognize that Hans Zimmer's best work has been done largely in collaboration with yes. other composers, like his Dark Knight score with, yeah. with um, you know, uh, Howard and, um, yeah. you know, uh, and, and uh, <laughs> like the Lion King, you know, like he wrote a lot of the Lion King. Um, yeah. with with people like Tim Rice and Elton John helping out too and like he's he's a very good collaborator and he also um, the thing that Hans Zimmer I think understands it really really well is how to tell a story filmically like I, I think he really gets why um, the compositional parts of a film have to buttress the storyline you know yeah, yeah. Um, and so like so bringing him on is a it could be a, a, a show that like they need to um, make something have more broad appeal but I, I think it actually is just a show of, of confidence that like that they should be investing in him totally and, um, bringing him in to just sort of fill in the blanks and to make this thing into a more cohesive large framework because Johan Johansson hasn't done something on the scale before he hasn't and his music is idiosyncratic and beautiful and fascinating but like it's okay sometimes to uh, to bring in other voices too but that's that's yeah. another conversation yeah. I know we're running long. yeah and I would call that a wrap for this episode I you know just yeah. Let's yeah. let our viewers or listeners know that uh Obviously, there's a lot more in store. There's so many different things we're going to be talking about in terms of soundtrack, in terms of storylines, what's, you know, happening in, you know, the original film and Blade Runner. And um, like you were talking about earlier, Patrick, like talking about the films and and works that have inspired Blade Runner, everything Mm -hmm. from The Hunger Games to... I, you know, almost any sci-fi you see to Battlestar Galactica, you know, to yep. yeah. um, so much has been inspired by Blade Runner. Um, I mean, it's going to be hours and hours and hours of discussion and guests. And maybe at some point, uh, if there's a fan who really wants to be on or call-ins or that kind of thing, yeah. there's just there's just going to be a lot in store. And we hopefully uh, will uh, have, uh, you know, enough of uh, attention from our listeners and our growing base of listeners that uh this will be a fun ride yeah totally and, and i, I want to just um let everybody know we have a facebook page for this podcast mm-hmm. shoulder of orion again we're called blade runner files um so type in shoulder of orion um or i'm sure it's linked from perfect organisms facebook page too uh and join us on there you know give us episode ideas let us know what you think we're going to be deliberately uh trying to engage with you guys we're going to be asking Mm -hmm. you to to give us things to read on the air things that you are reacting to getting your reflections on the film when it's released 2049 um people that you would like to see uh interviews with whether that be production designers or people who have written fan fiction or you know anything um we really want this to be 
you know, your voice as well. You know, we're all in this thing together. So absolutely. Yeah. So thanks everybody. Thank you. Thanks guys. I've seen Attack ships on fire off the shore of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the ten house gates. All those moments will be lost in time. Thy 